0: If you have your Bibles, I'd invite you to turn to Ephesians chapter uh, 5, and there is one correction. We're going to read chapter 5, verse 22, all the way through verse 33. I think your bulletins might say 31. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Let's pray. Our father, we bow now and ask your blessings upon the reading and the hearing and the preaching and the applying and the obeying of your word. Jesus says that what good is it that we would be hearers of the word? James says that we must also be doers thereof. And so, Father, we pray that the doing of the word would happen as a result of the hearing and the faithful preaching of the word, and that you would give grace upon grace upon grace to that end. We love you and honor you. In Christ's name, we pray. Amen. Uh, so, uh, this week, and not next week, but the week after next, I think we're going to get to some of the, I think, some of the hardest and most difficult passages in the book of Ephesians. And today's passage is difficult for several reasons. One, um, as a pastor who is also a husband, that when I read passages like this, I just feel like, man, I don't measure up. Like I don't love my own wife uh, in the way that Christ is uh, talked about in this passage. And so you just kind of approach it with a lot of humility and a lot of, man, I I don't get this right, and a lot of need for grace. Uh, But I think it's also hard because if you're a member of Redeemer, I wanna be honest with you that we're doing weddings in this church about every three weeks. So a lot of you are getting married and Steve and I are doing a lot of, start, starting a lot of counseling. And, and so for some of you in this room, this is kind of like right on time, right? But I want you to also think about, there's a, another segment in our, in our congregation who they, they aren't engaged and they're single. And they long to be married. It is something that they desire. And I actually had one person tell me in here, well, not here, but from our church, that the day that you talk about marriage, I'm not showing up because it's painful, right? As I want you to know that that's a reality for some people in our congregation, that we talk about marriage and we talk about its beauty, but for them it brings pain, right? I think it's difficult because there's some of you in this room, you're like, you're seven or you're 17, right? And you're just like, marriage? What, what, well, I'm not even thinking about marriage. I just want to get, go to the prom and, and go to my senior year of high school. What are you talking about, right? You know. And then there are some, I'll be honest, some of you are, are older, more seasoned couples, and this whole headship and submission that you don't need to hear this again. Well, maybe you do, but, 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 but you've seen a lot, a lot of grace in your marriage where the Lord has just given grace where you found delight in submitting to your husband. And, and, you're, and the husband, he finds delight in laying down his life for his wife. Just so gonna be, re- I'll be honest that not everybody is there. Like for a lot of us, it's still a daily struggle. Uh, and then there are some of you, and I imagine that, that, that you are married and you're a woman and your desire is to submit and you have been submitting. And the man that you submitted to has just bailed. And, and your submitting is a source of pain and frustration. And I can imagine that there are men in this room that you have loved sacrificially and your wife has gone AWOL. And, and, and so I think it cuts both ways that when you sort of talk about marriage and headship and husband and wife and how we relate that I just want to, I'm, I'm, I'm aware, I'm aware of that. And I prayed this whole week that one, I don't get to choose what I preach. I mean, we, I go by the spirit and we pick books And we work through books of the Bible and we let the Lord express his sovereignty over the scriptures. And so I want to say to you that this is one of the passages that we just have to talk about. And I want to. But I also think that that God can do something amazing. I think whether it's skepticism or pain or if you're not married and he can kind of file this stuff back here so that. When you get to that place, if that's a blessing he gives you and if he withholds it, you know how to pray for your married friends. I think God can take something like this that does not seem directly related to our experience and still bless us with it. And that's kind of my hope. My hope is that whatever it is that we feel that by the time we finish, that the Lord will do some transformative work and do his work. Now, to get at that, I want us to think through the context of this passage uh, and, and so I think if the Lord's gonna move us, then we have to understand the biblical context. Now, you'll hear me say it over and over again. It's, it's just a rule of a of, of faithful interpretation. You look at the context around the passage to help us find meaning, so you get sort of that from a biblical standpoint, but if we're gonna responsibly read the Bible, we also have to look at the historical context. What was happening in the first century when Paul wrote this in that particular culture. And this is one of the passages that I would think that if you don't go into first century historical context, then you will not arrive with a sense of awe and beauty about what God is doing. And so here's the thing, I've looked at a lot of firsthand sources this week. If you want them, see me afterwards, but I will commend Dr. Timothy Keller's book, The Meaning of Marriage, it is phenomenal. I will commend Clinton Arnold. He has a really concise, really, really, really good essay that looks at what, was, what life was like in first century Asia Minor and Ephesus was in Asia Minor. Uh, he also has a really good exegetical commentary. But he, he, there's another book by, written by, by the, a guy named Bruce Winter and it's called Roman Wives, Roman Widows, The Appearance of the New Women in Pauline Epistles. And so I would, it's, it's, it's not a long read, but if you want to get into the, some of this, I would commend that to you. But here's what I've found valuable out of reading some of those sources. The first thing that in Clinton Arnold's essay, he basically says that there were two important cultural factors that absolutely must shape how we view this passage. The first thing he says was that the male or husbands had what was called in Latin the patria. I hope I'm saying that right. And it's Latin for the power of the father. And here's what he writes. He says, The husband and the father had legal and social power over his wife, his children, and all of their servants. The male head received the dowry from the wife's parents when they married. And he unilaterally controlled the finances, made all the decisions affecting his wife and his entire household and had final ruling authority in all matters. And this was endorsed by Roman law. And he concedes that that not 100. This was not true for 100 percent of all husbands, but that the prevailing attitude of the day was that of insensitivity, absolute authority and tyranny. So this is what a, a, a historian is writing about what first century Asia Minor was like. That's the first thing, the backdrop is this absolute power and authority that men had and it was protected by law, right? Second thing is that there was, the, there was in this first century a new type of woman emerging out of Roman circles. And he says that these women were breaking cultural norms by exhibiting a far greater freedom, independence from the rule of her husband and asserting herself in Roman society. Now, here's what this means. First of all, that there was blatant discrimination in some of the laws. One of the laws, for example, if a man were to commit adultery, that, that, that he would have freedom to lay with his servant and you could do nothing. But if a woman was caught in an adulterous relationship, she could be killed or banished to an island. This is in Roman law, go, go look it up, right? And so what you have is, this is kind of the first Me Too movement. You kind of get the, these women. Some of you know, I mean, you get these group of women who are saying, wait a minute, that's not fair. That is not right. And so you, you, you have that happening. You also have this, this envy, right? You, prostitutes could dress with makeup and exotic clothing and could dress seduct- seductively and did not have to cover themselves in veils. Uh, and, and, and you see Peter bring this up in first Peter, I, you don't have to turn there, but I don't know if you ever read it, but, but Peter says, wives, do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold and jewelry or the clothing that you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person uh, of the heart with imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit. Why would Peter say wives don't do that? Because what was happening in their day is that's how loose women would dress. They would dress really immodestly with a lot of makeup, do weird things with their hair. And and Peter is telling the Christian wives, don't be jealous. Like, don't be jealous. The the hidden beauty is that in your heart. And so that was happening. and So you get women who would remove the veil. They want to remove the veil. If they can walk around like that, I'm going to walk around like that. Right. But it was it was even more that that women started to have key uh, success in areas of society that women were getting an education and obtaining jobs in the workplace, in politics, law, and even city government. And here is what, what, what uh, Arnold does. He says, hey, there were 28 women. This is historical truth. 28 women served as mayors in Asia Minor around this time. Another 37 women were chief crown bearers in 17 cities in Asia Minor. 48 women ran, for, uh, ran the gymnasium in 23 other cities in Asia Minor. Now, when we think of gymnasiums, do not think of, like, we're going to go hoop at, like, the RTS gym and bust a sweat, you know, and maybe tear a ACL, right? In <laughs> and, and Roman culture, the, the gymnasium was the center of society. It's where you went to go to school. It's where you went to have uh, athletic games. It's, it, it, it's where you went for, to exercise. And so this idea that you have women, women who've ascended to the top, that they are the ones who are, they're, they're shaping culture. And on top of this, there's evidence from a lot of playwrights in that day that even poetry was starting to change. That, that the stage plays, if you look at some of the laws that were being passed about stage plays and what could be portrayed, what was happening was th- this sensibility that was out there in the broader culture, it made its way to the stage play. And so if you brought your family to a stage play, the stage play mocked submissiveness and it, and it portrayed this woman as having arrived, right? And it was so important that it was so widespread that you can go look up. They're called the Julian laws. And they were they were passed by Augustus from 18 B.C., 18 years before Jesus uh, was born, all the way up to 14 A.D. when he died. And so we're talking about right there in that window there were, there were three laws that were passed that, talk, that, 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 go, that talks about a lot of this. And, and here's what one scholar says, we can see through the laws that were being passed, not only what was happening in society at that time, but also the lengths that Roman leaders would go to stop it. That's the backdrop of the letter. Men abusing authority. Men not committing to one wife. And wives wanting to come from under the authority of their husbands. Wives wanting to overcorrect this idea of what it means to exist in, in Asia Minor. If you want to, to be honest, this passage is just as relevant today, right? We're having these same conversations now, but that's the backdrop to the text, this tension between the genders, so that, that's sort of the context. The second thing is, what, what's the corrective? What does Paul do? And, and I would be really clear here that he's correcting both wives and husbands. He has words to say to both genders. Now, what this passage isn't addressing. This, I think some people, when we hear about gender stuff, we immediately wanna talk about, you know, what's a woman's role in the church and, and, and we just kinda go down this, this broad path. And I wanna, I wanna bring this back to this text. This text is not about that. This text is like a laser and it's a laser focused right on husbands and wives and how they interact in the family unit. So I'm going to ask you to fire your inner lawyer that wants you that wants to bring everything into this text and form this theology around it. I'm telling you that's not what Paul's talking about here. He's talking about husband and wife in a home. Right? Next thing is, what isn't this passage forbidding, right? What isn't it forbidding? Now, remember, the backdrop was immense success by women in the workplace and culture and the arts. And and you know what Paul does not condemn in this passage? He doesn't have an issue with any of that. He does not tell the woman who is serving as a mayor, you can't be a mayor because your place is in the home." He does not come to the woman who is teaching. You can't teach because your place is over here. He doesn't speak a word to any of that. He's not saying that our women can't run their own businesses. He is not saying that our women can't go back to school and get that counseling degree that you've dreamed of. He is not saying that our women can't be the best medical doctors or therapists or teachers or educators or administrators in the world. He is not saying that a woman can't have a photography business that does beautiful work. He is not saying that a woman can't open up this printmaking company that does beautiful art. He is not saying that you can't run a company that designs websites or run a nannying business or work as a realtor, an artist, a businesswoman, a professor, a marketing firm. Or he's not saying that, hey, you can say, hey, I don't want to do that. I feel like my calling is right here in the home. Paul gives immense freedom here, immense freedom to use your God-given gifts and talents for the blessing and flourishing of society. We know that he does not forbid this type of stuff because when you look at the book of Acts, guess what what happened with Paul in Acts 16 when he made it to Philippi and preached the gospel, a lady named Lydia heard and, and was converted and baptized And she says, Paul, if I am worthy, will you stay with us? And she did. And they did. You know what she did for a living? She sold purple goods. She was a businesswoman. Acts 18, Priscilla and Aquila, right? This couple who had been kicked out of Rome, Paul met them in Corinth and he stayed with them. And the Bible actually says they were tent makers by trade. He does not say the husband was the tent maker. He says they were the tent maker, as if this woman is right at her husband's side, spinning tents and running the business. And you know what happened? Paul stayed with them. They traveled with Paul, that when they got to Ephesus, they met Mr. Golden Mouth himself, the most eloquent preacher that is talked about in the Bible, a man by the name of Apollos. And Apollos' theology was not all the way right. And you know what? Priscilla and Aquila went and confronted Apollos. And in the Greek, it's beautiful because the husband's name isn't first. His name is first at the beginning. But by the end, there's this switching as if this woman, she was like the real deal. Right. What about Jesus? When he was with the 12 in Luke, chapter eight, the 12 disciples were with Jesus, plus some women, Mary, Joanna, who's who was the, the, the wife of Chusa. So he had some married women alongside of him, Susanna and many others who provided for them out of their means. And so what Paul is not condemning is not the success that these women had. They didn't even bring it up. Nowhere. And so I want to publicly affirm our women here this morning that whatever the Lord has called you to, for the flourishing of his kingdom and the good of the gospel. I honor you. And you matter. And what you do, it matters, right? However, there are two things that he's addressing. Now, look at the text with me. Look at verse 22. It says, wives, submit to your, hu- your own husbands, ask of the Lord, I'm going to be really honest with you. In the Greek, the word submit is not even in that verse. That passage literally means wives to their own husbands as to the Lord. Now, I heard somebody say, oh, now where it is, is it is in verse 24. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives submit submitted everything to their husbands. So it, it, I'm telling you in verse 22, the word isn't there. But it is there. Now, the question that we have to ask is, wait a minute, Paul, are you talking out of the side of your mouth? Like, which one is it? First, we add submit there. Now, now, here's what's beautiful about this section we're in. Why in the world would our English translations put submit right there? I'll tell you why. Because go up one verse. Just go back up into the next section. Sometimes I like the headings, wives and husbands you see right there. Sometimes I don't. But go right right above that. You see what it says in verse 21? Submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit to your own husbands. That word for submit isn't there. So what Paul wants us to do is to go look for the verb. Like, go look for it. And when you go look for it, guess where you find it? You find it in the previous verse. And so before we say, wives, you need to submit to your husbands, Well, Paul says, no, homeboy, you got to go up one verse and notice who needs to be submitting. Who is that commandment for? Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. In other words, before we sit up here and talk about women needing to submit, linguistically, what Paul does is says, wait a minute, wait a minute. Submission is what every normal Christian must do to be a Christian. You're going to submit. You're going to have to lay aside your personal concerns to do life with one another. That that the moment we stop submitting to one another, we don't have the church. And so what submission looks like first and foremost is if you name the name of Jesus, you're called to submit. We're called to submit to our elders. We're called to submit to one another. that, That you do this every Sunday when you worship and we sing this song that you don't know. You would rather us sing like a hymn that is tempered and, you know, it's predictable. You would rather that. But you're submitting that when when there's some freedom there. And it works the other way around when when we would want absolute freedom in some areas in worship. But we do this hymn that that you don't know. It's a lot of words. We're, We're both. We're laying aside this thing for the sake of a broader unity. That's how the church is designed to work. Submitting to one another, it happens in your growth groups, right? That if you got somebody who just wants to talk all the time and all the time and all the time, no, submitting in their moment means, hey, just let somebody else talk, right? Submitting happens when we do budget in the church. And the elders submit that to the deacons. We trust you. Submitting happens when you look at your calendar week in and week out and you want to be Lord over it and you want to dictate what I do every hour of the day. But submitting my calendar to the good of the church, it says that when so and so's father dies, you might need to take a trip down there. And I know I had these plans for this day, but I'm going to submit my calendar and my convenience and my comfort for the sake of the whole, for the good of the body. You can't be a good Christian. And be prideful. And before Paul calls any woman to submit to any man, he first and foremost says that this is a mark of a believer, period, Your life will be marked by submission. However, he does say wives submit to Christ. No, he does say wives submit to your husbands and everything as Christ, as a church submits to Christ. If I could rewrite this in the Pastor L version, here's how I would write this transition. I would start in verse 21. A mark of all Christians is that of submission. Counting others more important, I will go to verse 22. And yes, wives, this is true. Beginning with a man that you're married to. And I will go to verse 24. Yes, even to that man, right? I think that captures the essence of what Paul is doing. That in other words, if women were caught in his day, of of pursuing outside interests, gaining the upper hand on their husbands in society, and the men were abusing authority, there was a tendency for a woman to give greater submission to a citizen than to your own husband, especially if she was in government. There is a tendency to be more gracious to a boss than to your boo, right? There is a tendency to honor Caesar, but not Carlos. You get it? I think that's what Paul is getting. They're so caught up in going out here. And Paul's kind of bringing them back. Where everyone's called to submit. And wives, to your own husbands. Of all the people in the world that you are quick to be patient with, endearing with, long-suffering with, humble with, and meek towards. It starts with your husband. And I know there are areas where our husbands are not good leaders, right? And there are areas for some of you where your husband is not a believer and there are areas where your husbands might actually want you to do what is sinful. And, and I would just say that we have to remember first that, that, that we're, we're, we're dual, dually aligned, that in one sense you're in the home under the headship of this man, but make no mistake about it, you're also in a greater relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ and when the values of the husband do not coincide with the values of the savior, then we have to always bow the knee to our greater husband. And so I don't think this means you submit to submit whatever he says, no, it's, it's this idea that, man, is it if it's sinful, then, then no, right? And I, ha- I, I wish I could nuance that more, but I, I won't right now. Um, But Paul doesn't just have words for women, he also has words for men, for husbands. As a matter of fact, he spends at least three to four times more ink writing about husbands. And, And again, do not divorce it from the cultural moment that Paul was writing in. Husbands in Paul's day abused authority, and they did so with the blessing of the law and the land, and they were using these laws for their own gain and satisfaction and fulfillment, and it is against that backdrop that Paul has to tell husbands to do one thing, and that's to love. He says it over and over again, six times, love your wives, love your wives, love your wives, and, and in every instance of the word love, you wanna know which word he uses? Agape. Now, if you've read C.S. Lewis, his Four Loves, then you know C.S. Lewis talks about uh, this familial love, this need love, that a child might have for his mother. Like, I need to nurse. I need you to change me. I need you to buckle me up, right? That's a type of love that is need. And, and C.S. says, hey, that's not a bad thing. It's, it's real, right? And he says that there's another type of love, and it's, it's, it's philos, kind of this brotherly love, this friendship, when, when two people say, hey, you two, like, you two, like, we, we see this truth the same way, and there starts this path of friendship. That's also in that same book. Then he talks about eros, this this romantic love, that that too is a form of love. And then he talks about the highest love. It's agape, that it's it's sacrificial. It it lays aside rights to serve. It's not merely a feeling, but an action. It's unwavering, committed, loyal, covenant-keeping, serving type of love. And Paul's hearers would have known exactly what he was doing with that. The backdrop is they were abusing authority. The backdrop is they were not buffing at society. The backdrop was they might have loved their wives for companionship, they might have loved their wives out of this need-based stuff, they might have loved their wives for romance, but what was lacking was that the highest love, sacrificial, relentless, Now, here's the thing. In the same way that submission is not something that is reserved for women, you do know that love is not something that's just reserved for husbands. If you're going to be a a Christian, one of the fruits of the spirit is love. You get it that they will know you are mine by our your love, right? that greater love than no man had than this, and he would lay down his life. So so in this sense of we got to look at, at, at the husbands the same light, that he's not saying, hey, man, you husbands, you and you alone need to agape your wives. No, as a follower of Christ, we're all marked with agape because we've been saved by agape. You get the image? But what he's doing, he's pressing into the point in culture where they weren't doing it. In other words, you love passions, you love hunting, you love going to work. But let me tell you where you need to also press into love when you walk in that door. I know society puffs you up and it gives you all these rights as men. But I'm going to tell you when you walk in that door and love that woman, you lay those rights and everything society has done to puff you up and you get on your feet and you serve. You see the image? That's the corrective. It's happening in a context. It's happening in a moment. And here's the thing. I can bet without a shadow of a doubt, if you're really, really honest, that this is hard. You know why it's hard? Because of Genesis chapter three. It's the reason Bentley read the passage that one of the curses of the fall when God went to Eve. You will desire to rule over your husband, and he will desire to rule over you. That's why we're having this very conversation about wives who don't want to honor and submit, and men who don't want to sacrifice and love. It ought to prove That we are living outside of the garden in a broken world and we're broken. And the place that offers us a lot of peace is still a broken institution. Now, Paul says, hey, that's the context. This is the corrective. Here's the model. You know, God is not a God is a show and tell or I would say a tell and show. Uh, and he does that here. Paul knows that there is a quiet part of every woman that hears this and rolls her eyes, pops her lip, scoffs, you know, kind of like if you're married. Yeah, I, I won't. I won't make that comment. He's kind of like I don't know, what you doing, you know, get the get the neck, neck, neck rolling going on when you hear this kind of stuff. Right. But he also knows that in the heart of every man that sometimes it's quiet, sometimes it's vocal, that we don't want to love sacrificially. We would rather be loved and be served and be waited on. And you notice what he does? He doesn't do, he does not sugarcoat this. He says, no, you're going to submit. I'm commanding you to live this way and I'm commanding you to love. Now, why would he not budge on that? Because earthly marriages, whether we know it or not, Don't merely happen in history, but every marriage is a part of the eternal divine mystery. Look at verses 31 and 32 with me. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. And then he gives you some qualifications of what he's talking about. This mystery is profound. And I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. This isn't the first time that Paul uses mystery in Ephesians. You don't have to turn there, but just kind of trust me on this. He uses it in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 9, that God lavished upon us with all wisdom and insight. Verse 9 of chapter 1, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and on earth. He uses it again in chapter 3, verse 3, verse 4, verse 6, verse 9. And there he's talking about the church and the Gentiles coming in. And Paul would go so far as to say the mystery is that Gentiles are fellow heirs. Now, how does Paul use mystery in the entire book of Ephesians? He uses it in this way. Right. So let's say this is a timeline. Right. And I'm going from infinity in the past to infinity in the future. And I'm saying that we're over here somewhere, and and so this is when you get saved, and when you and I get saved, we're over here somewhere. And from our human perspective, we think, we think that, wow, like God thought a lot of me, right? We think that Jesus Christ was plan B because he didn't know what was going to happen, and what Paul says, no, that is not how to read Scripture. Scripture says it works the other way around, that the mystery is that when you got saved through Christ— that Christ was playing A from the jump, that when you put faith in Christ, it was because God foreloved you, foreknew you, saw you in eternity future and says, that person is mine. You get it? It's a mystery because here we go thinking we got it all together and we show up to the party and God's like, I made this work. I knew you before you knew me. I knew you before you were anything. Mystery is always used that way in Ephesians. And it's used that way of Gentiles coming into the life of the church that we would think, oh, my God, Gentiles are fellow heirs. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. And, and, and Paul says, no, that mystery, that was the intent from the beginning, from the beginning. And so when he uses mystery right here, here's our temptation. When we read this passage, I think I used to think that, OK, here's what Paul does. He's trying to write them letter about how to behave in marriage. And he has what most pastors have. We have the, I, I use Evernote, I don't know what other dudes do, but I use Evernote and if I get an idea for a sermon, I'll just put a little note in there and leave it. And then I, can kind of, I got these little ways to kind of get to it. And, and when I need an illustration, I kind of, oh, let me go search Evernote. Got it, got it right there. That, that helps me justify this. That's how we think this is happening that Paul is writing this letter to them about marriage. And what he does is, oh, let me look for an illustration. Oh, I got it. Oh, Jesus in the church. like, Oh, that's good. That'll preach, right? (laughs) And that's not how we're supposed to read it. That's inconsistent with the way that he's used mystery in the whole book. What he's really saying is the other way around. Before all time and space, the first wedding that God had in mind was not Adam and Eve. It was not even any earthly marriage between humans. The first marriage that God had in mind was Jesus and the church. God already set up what salvation would look like. Salvation would look like a wedding. It would look like a son who would leave his father's house and glory to go and win a bride. And it would look like this son holding fast to his bride and divorce is not even in the vocabulary of redemption. It would look like this bride being the apple of his eye and he would come to the father and say, father, I want to go and be married. I want to go and win a bride for myself. And the father says, yes, sir, go get her. When the time is right, I will send you with my full blessing. And it looks like this son who knew in eternity past that I will go and the rescue mission will involve me clothing her in righteousness and I will woo her with my love. I would win her through my sacrifice. I would not even keep my own life. I would lay it down so that I could look the church in the face and say that there is no one in this galaxy or on this planet or in this universe. Who loves you like I do? That is the prototypical marriage. It is not your marriage and it is not my marriage. What God had in eternity past, the first marriage, was that in his church. And so rather than us thinking about our marriages and trying to go up, that's the wrong way to read the text. The right way to read the text is the first marriage in the bosom and heart of God before all time was that of the Lord Jesus Christ and his church. And that comes down in every earthly marriage whether we know it or not, we're showcasing something that is so much bigger and better than us. That's precisely why He commands wives to submit to their husbands as the church, the bride of Christ, submits to Jesus. We've been saved by submission. He's delivered us from the penalty and power of sin. We, the church, will crown him with many crowns and adore him and trust his leadership and submit our lives and our wills to him. And wives get the privilege. It is a privilege if we can see it with the eyes of faith. We get the privilege to image that to everyone around us. We get to image what the church looks like as it submits to her husband. This is why he commands husbands to love six times. Love that is sacrificial, unwavering, loyal, covenantal, relentless. Love that had every right. Like, like, here's what blows my mind. Jesus had every single right to lay hold of his equality with God. He had every right to come to this earth and and demand to be served and demand it. And it would not have been sin. It would have been the right thing. But scripture tells tells us over and over, he did not come to be served, but to serve. The, The disciples couldn't get it when Jesus Christ goes into a room He's, the, he's, the, he's, the, he's the, the best host of the party. This is God of God. And he gets on his own knees and he starts to wash their feet. And Peter says, no, 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 no. And Jesus says, it, it can happen no other way. He who will be great amongst you must become little. When Jesus is commanding husbands to love this way, it's flowing out of the way that he loves us. That is the way marriage is supposed to work. Not us fitting Jesus in, but Jesus shaping what we do top down. And he also tells in the same way husbands love their wives as their own bodies, that, 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 that you get up and, and we give ourselves sleep when we're tired. And so we go get in the bed that most of the time when something is hurting, we we say, hey, I need to take some medicine, right? That, that we have all these mechanisms built. We get up and we shave and we clean ourselves. And what Paul is saying, I'm giving you two images. One is that of the church. And then when you look in the mirror and look at how you take care of yourself, that's it right there. Because you are one flesh with your wife. Love her. Put that much more attention and focus on tending to her. Now, what's the blessing of this? I think first thing, it, it, it glorifies the Lord. When we're living like this, it brings honor and glory to the Lord. Second thing, and you see it in 1 Corinthians 7 and also in 1 Peter, that passage I read in 1 Peter. I want you to listen to it because it, it's, it's, I think Peter and Paul both knew that some of us would be in these situations where you're married to a spouse and they just ain't acting right. They just, they can't get right. They went off their rocker. And something's not right. And here's the beautiful thing that, that listen to what Peter says. I'll go ahead and tell it. Well, I, I don't want to mess it up. He says, likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some of them do not obey the word, they may be won without a word, but by the conduct of their wives. You see that? Even when Joker ain't acting right, God says, still honor. How do you know when he won't hear the word of truth, your submission will speak volumes to him? He says it. Paul says it in 1 Corinthians seven, right? That how do you know that your unbelieving spouse won't be saved? In other words, this dynamic of getting this right. The blessing is salvation that an unbelieving spouse may come to know the gracious love of God through our behavior and conduct. Kids, I mean, I think about this all the time, like with my own kids or kids in general. Like, what's the best way for me to teach my kids about the importance of the church? What's the best way for me to show my kids what Jesus is like? For my wife to honor me. That my kids will connect the dots by faith. That this is what this is how the church is supposed to treat her beloved. My kids will connect the dots that this is how Jesus loves me. He really pursues me and is gracious. I I hope this family does not mind me sharing it. Um, But I remember when Shelby Watts was. um, He was gone. I mean, for all purposes. And I remember Liz at the hospital. And just her words about her father. He was so kind. So loving. So tender. So gracious. That's what I want. I want my kids to see Jesus through the way that I treat them. And that is exactly what God has ordained if we want to show our kids the beauty of God's grace, sacrificially love in the home, and it will speak volumes that you know nothing about right now. Last thing, where's the power for this type of functioning marriage? This is easier said than done. I know more than what I can do. I'm going to lay that out there. If you've been married for a while, uh, you know that you're not in the honeymoon phase anymore, that you're going to hit this kind of wall, you know, where's the power? Again, I think the context is our, our, our Savior here, right? That Notice that, that word that, that verse in 21, and I want you to look at your Bible so that you can kind of follow the logic of what's happening here. Remember, I told you that that verb for submitting is borrowed from the previous verse. Well, guess what? That previous verse is a part of a longer sentence. And that sentence goes all the way back up to verse 18. In other words, this verse 18 through 21 is this long sentence with commas and stuff. But notice what what read it and do not be drunk with wine for that is debauchery, but be filled with the spirit right there. And notice what the feeling of the Spirit will work out in the hearts of God's people. We will address one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs and not shame. We will sing and make melody to the Lord with our hearts. We will give thanks always for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. And submission will be possible through the power of the Holy Spirit. It's all linked right back up there to the work of the Holy Spirit. Well, what about love, Pastor L? Well, go back up. Look at at verse 5, chapter 5, verse 2. Look at chapter 5, verse 1. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. And notice what it says, and walk in love. That's the same word, agape, right there. The same word he uses over here, as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. Now, notice that therefore... That points us back to whatever Paul was talking to for. He's closing out his argument saying, therefore now. Now what goes right before that? Verse 30, and do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice Verse 32 of chapter four, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God and Christ forgave you. Therefore, imitate God, walk in love. How in the world can we imitate God and walk in love? Holy Spirit is right there as well. So, both what women are called to do, namely submit and honor their husbands, and what men are called to do, namely to sacrifice and to covenantally be faithful, these are both spirit empowered. You can't do it alone. You will try and you will get tired and you will be angry and you will be frustrated. But you have been indwelled by the spirit. This is spirit led stuff that he's calling us to because you've been bought by the blood of Christ. How does this happen? I'm gonna wrap it up right here. That's the theology behind it. The the Holy Spirit gives us power and the desire and the ability we want to flip off he's like oh chill out all right just stop that you know? when i don't want to leave and leave and serve all right go ahead get up do that you know that that kind of nudging and wooing that's a real presence right what does it look like i got one theory and i'm thinking about me that i think we're human and we have these limited resources and i think it works in areas of emotions and behavior so let's take example your wife and you got three kids, two kids, and the husband works outside the home and you kind of quasi homeschool or you might take them to school. I'm just trying to paint a picture here, right? You get up in the morning, whether you know it or not, you're submitting. When the kids get up, you're submitting. You have to get out of the bed and tend to the kids. That when the kids are hungry, you're submitting because now you got to go and cook. And when the refrigerator opens up and says, hey, no more food in here, no more food in here, you're submitting to the refrigerator because, you know, you got to run the Kroger to put food in it. And then when the kids go and play and you got junk all over the house, you're submitting again because the junk is screaming, clean me up, clean me up. Right. And then, you know, you're submitting when it's time to cook. You got the food and, and, and the food won't cook itself and so you got you to put a meal together. And so you're submitting again. I'm submitting what I want to do for these things that I need to do. Sometimes you might find joy in it, but sometimes you don't. But you're submitting, right? And then don't let a kid have to have practice and ballet and baseball and football and soccer. And so you think you own your calendar, but you're not. You're submitting your calendar to their calendars. And by the end of the day, guess what? Man, I'm submitted out, too. I don't I don't. I'd have submitted everything all day to everybody. I ain't got nothing, I ain't got. And then this joker would have come in and want me to keep on submitting to him, too. You know? And what about men? I think it works the same way, right? We we've, we've love in the sense of sacrifice. I'm covenantally faithful to my job. I'm showing up every day. And I'm meeting with customers. And I'm, I'm loving my work and finding joy in my work. And I got these things that are causing me to go out here and do this. And it's the same thing for a man in a different way. And so by the time dude gets home, guess what, man? I'm loved out. My, my tank, if I had a reservoir of, you know, you see your, your, your battery indicator on your phone, if you could put one of those above you on, on the love, sacrificial love spectrum, by the time you do a full day at work, that thing is on E. And if you're a wife and you've been tending the kids and stuff and stuff, y- your submission thing is on E. And, and, and guess what, what can easily happen? that both people walk into the house on fumes. Man, I just want to be loved and served. Well, I just want to be loved and served. Well, I ain't finna love and serve you cause I done did everybody else, you know? And there is the, the that, that's it right there. That's the flash point right there. Now, here's what Tim Keller says. We often find ourselves running on fumes, spiritually and physically. We must know that there is a fuel station And where it is, and our spouses aren't the fueling station. Rather, being filled with the Spirit, it happens when the truth of God's glory and Jesus' saving work are not just believed with the mind, but create an inner music in the heart and inner relish in the soul. In other words, I can't look at my wife to fill me up. She don't have that much juice, you know what I'm saying? But Jesus does. His mercies are new to me each day. That thinking upon the goodness of the Lord Jesus will compel me to lead with courage and boldness and grace. And thinking upon the submission and the love and glory of the of the Lord Jesus and his church will empower me as a mother or a wife. To go a little farther and to submit and to honor him. We got a routine or I have a routine that I, I leave work and I'm drained a lot of days and I kind of got a routine and I'll either run uh, by Deep South Pops and I run in there and I get me an espresso. I need to get my, my physical man kind of pushed back up a little bit and I listen to music or listen to scripture or pray as I'm walking as I'm driving home Because I know I'm not on the clock off the clock when I walk in the door. My wife and my kids, they need me. They need me to be present. And So I would encourage us all men or women find a way to be full of the spirit. When you're drained and when you're tired. And he promises to give strength. He promises to apply the truth of the gospel. That we might enact that beautiful dance right there in our own homes. Let's pray. Father, we uh, ask your blessing upon the doing of your word. Would you honor uh, the Lord Jesus Christ by having his people do this dance in our homes and in our lives. I pray for those who are hurting because of various trials in marriage. Might the word of God still be true and might you be a a sweet comforter. and Might you be one who draws near and works and saves and fixes and repairs and builds up and sustains. Would you do this for your glory and honor in Christ's name? Amen.